Friends, this is a powerful passage of Scripture. In many ways, it is the climax of the Gospel of John. And we'll hit the resurrection soon, but the cross is so important for us to pay attention to this morning. Jesus is told as we go through the life of Christ and even fold in the other gospels and conversations he had with his disciples, Jesus told his disciples at least three times that he would be betrayed, he'd be turned over into the hands of evil men, he would be crucified, and that he would rise again from the dead. We have been through in the Gospel of John all of the teaching and the preparation that Jesus has gone through with his disciples on the night before the cross, the last several chapters in the Gospel of John. Jesus now has been handed over to the Jewish leaders, and they have managed to hand Jesus over now to Pilate. And now Jesus, in our passage of Scripture, is in the hands of those who will actually physically crucify him. John does not dwell on all of the gruesome details, but neither does he shy away from the events around the cross and the cross itself. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, we need to behold the cross and to understand the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus really died on that cross, and he was buried in that tomb we're going to end this morning with his burial. We will get to his resurrection, but we can't jump straight to the resurrection. We're going to discover that we're going to have to sit through a day of darkness with the disciples. And what that means and how that unfolds and how Christ then eventually reveals himself as the risen Savior and Lord to them again. And we also need to understand how the cross is understood by the rest of Scripture, by the rest of the Bible. The cross is not just a horrible event. Friends, this is critical for us this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ is the hinge of God's plan to defeat sin and death and restore relationship with him. If you want to put it in these terms, it is the supreme theological event, the cross of Christ and his resurrection. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, here are the kinds of things that we're going to spend time with. First, we're just going to watch the cross unfold as John spends the rest of this chapter talking to us about everything that happens around the cross of Christ. We're done with the politics. We're now in the hands of the soldiers. And now we see his death on the cross and his burial. John, the gospel writer, does something else unique in this passage. He actually cites a lot of Old Testament scripture. There's not a lot of that in the gospel of John. If you're, if you're reading through the gospels and you read the gospel of Matthew and Mark and things like that, you're going to read a lot of Old Testament scripture, and you're not going to read a lot of that in John. He writes his gospel initially to Gentile believers who don't have a lot of connection to the Old Testament. But when it comes to the cross, this is such an important event, and God is completing so many things in the activity that happens around the cross that John draws in the Old Testament. This is how important this moment is in the life of Christ and for you and for me. So we're going to watch the events of the cross unfold. And then I want to ask and spend time answering this question. Why did the cross happen? What does it do? What does it accomplish? If the cross is the linchpin in God's plan of redemption, of restoration. See, God created us in perfect relationship with him. And in our fall, that relationship is broken. And after our fall, God begins this plan of redemption that comes true in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If this is the linchpin of his plan, what is God's plan of redemption. Well, let's begin reading this passage of Scripture. We're going to start in John chapter 19, the last little phrase of chapter 19, verse 16. And let's read through the first section of this passage. Friends, this is what the word of the Lord says. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. 
Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Jesus takes his cross to a hill just outside the city walls called the Place of the Skull. John says in Aramaic, which would have been the com- one of the common languages of the day, the Aramaic, the Latin, and the Greek, it's called Golgotha. In Latin, this place is called Calvary. That's where we get that name, Calvary, is from the hill where Jesus is crucified. Now, traditionally, before a crucifixion, a prisoner is flogged again. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus is flogged after this sentence. Now, John's told us that Jesus has already been flogged in brutal fashion. It looks like Christ is whipped a second time before he has this cross placed upon his back that he has to then carry through the city streets of Jerusalem and up the hill to where he is going to be crucified. And then Jesus, John says, is crucified between two criminals. In this act of crucifixion, a crossbeam is hung on a piece of timber that is about nine feet long and has been sunk into the ground. His hands would have been nailed, nailed to that beam, and his legs and his feet twisted in such a way so they can get a single nail through both feet and then into the beam. And then as he is raised up, as he is put there on the cross, the weight of his body is going to pull him down in such a way that it begins to crush his chest and his lungs. And as they would hold there on the cross, they have these moments of suffocation and they have oxygen loss to all of the body, including the brain. And then when the body struggles to get oxygen, they have to pull up or push up on those nails so they can get a breath of air. And then their bodies fall back down because of the torture it takes to pull themselves up and take another breath of air. Crosses were designed for perpetual pain until death occurred. They were designed for people and their survival mechanism to pull themselves up as often and as long as they could to continue to breathe. Criminals would often last not just hours, but some of them days in this state of torture. More than one historian has said the Romans had invented in the cross the greatest form of torture known to humanity. Jesus is crucified, he's nailed to a cross, and he hangs there not that far off the ground, having been whipped and beaten and now nailed to the cross. What John tells us then is that Pilate has written an inscription in these three different languages so that absolutely everybody walking by could read it. Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Pilate, in his own way, takes this moment to have the last word between him and the Jews. And we've read about all of that political wrangling and everything the Jews wanted that they finally got. And Pilate, who believes that Jesus is innocent, tries to wash his hands of the execution of Jesus Christ. So he has the last word, so to speak. In the Jews, in their typical way, these Jewish leaders, no, 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 no. He's not Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He said he was king of the Jews. And in one of these moments, again, where somebody in Scripture says more than they know, Pilate says, I'm going to leave it just as it is. Not that he says he was the king of the Jews. We know, and we've talked about what this means over the last couple of weeks, Jesus is king. And that moment, to call it ironic is to use too soft of a word. Jesus, in the state that he is in, 
Isaiah 52 says he's not even physically recognizable anymore. He's hanging on this cross, bleeding and dying. He's been betrayed. He's been beaten. He has been defeated in every human sense of that word. And while he hangs on the cross, we read again that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. While this is taking place, more continues to happen around the cross of Christ. In verse 23, John tells us this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the other disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After the years in which Jesus has spent so much time with sometimes a small group of disciples, sometimes a larger group of disciples, sometimes hillsides filled with thousands of people being fed by Jesus Christ, both by his teaching and by his miraculous work. Sometimes he would draw these giant crowds. He is brought into the city of Jerusalem with the accolades of the crowds. And on and on that story goes with the life of Jesus Christ. When it comes to this moment, there's just a handful of people left at the foot of the cross. A few of the women who've been his disciples, his mother, his mother's sister, and a couple of others. And then John, the disciples, left there at the foot of the cross. And John, while he witnesses all of these things, he's telling us, and the soldiers not that far away have taken his clothes, and they've begun to divide it up into four different parts for the four soldiers. And John is telling us these kinds of things to make sure that we know that all of this has been part of the plan. God has laid the path for all of this to take place. It would have been very easy for us to believe that his early readers, especially those coming out of the Jewish tradition in the triumphalism of the Old Testament and who the anointed one really would be, they would be reading this and they would be thinking, there's no way on earth this would happen to the Messiah. So John continues to draw in these pieces of the Old Testament to make sure that we know all of this has been the plan. All of this is in the hands of God the Father. Even the dividing of his garments among the soldiers. That happens. That's told to us. It is foreshadowed, prophesied in Psalm chapter 22. In fact, I would encourage you this week as you reflect upon the cross to go back and read that passage, Psalm 22. It just powerfully leads us to the cross. But in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it tells us that they divided his garments among them. And then Jesus, this is just a powerful personal moment. The condition that he is in while he is hanging on the cross. Jesus' father, Joseph, we really don't hear about him after Jesus is about 12 years old. Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father, has been dead for a very long time, and Jesus is about to die on the cross. So he sees his mother, and he sees John the disciple, and he gives them to each other. He is essentially asking John to take care of his mother, take her into his home, and make sure that he is, she is taken care of. So John says that's exactly what happens. We've had this powerful personal moment while Jesus is on the cross between his mom And one of his disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So these things continue to unfold around the cross. John is pulling in these threads, these strings from the Old Testament. 
And so this string that we didn't know what to do with is now being tied together. It's being put together in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we reach this point now in verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and he said this to fulfill Scripture, John says, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Knowing now that all was finished, everything that he needed to do had been done up to this point. The will of his father had been completed, and now this is all that remains. As the Gospel of John continued, and as we drew closer to the cross, especially during the, 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 the Passion Week, as the, John, the Gospel writer, spent so much time on Jesus' teaching from chapters 11 and 12 to this point, Jesus speaks more and more and more about he came to do what the Father told him to do. And he will perfectly complete his Father's will. And he continues to use this word that surprises us. That all of this is going to be glory to the Father. The cross itself is going to mean the glory of God. Here's part of how that unfolds earlier in the gospel. In John chapter 12. Jesus says this, now my soul is troubled. Jesus knows what is coming. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus says, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's telling us what's coming. The Father knows what's coming. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Am I going to be asked to be released from the cross? I can't, for this is why I came. And this will be glory to the Father. And it is through the cross that I will now draw people to myself. John says, and now to fulfill Scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. We read this prophecy, this foreshadowing in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. This is a cheap, sour wine that the soldiers would use during crucifixion. They would give it to people who were suffocating who are dehydrated and dying, they would give it to these people to deaden the pain. We might think that's an act of mercy, but what it does is it prolongs the crucifixion. They would give it to these criminals, and this would go on and on and on. But Scripture tells us that Jesus would speak this, and he takes from this sponge in this moment this sour wine that is given to him. And then Jesus says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. A few scholars have said, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, if the cross and the resurrection are the climax of the gospel, this is the climax of the crucifixion story. When Jesus, knowing that everything was finished, he then, as he speaks these words in the cross, the last thing he says before he dies, before he gives up the Spirit, it is finished. Everything he's done up to this point, his birth, his perfect life here on earth, everything he taught, everyone he healed, all he said to the disciples to prepare them to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit after he was gone. It is finished. But even more than that, the work that Jesus performs to defeat sin and death, it's finished. I've done everything I've been asked to do that I came here to do. And he speaks this word, and in the Greek it is a powerful word. 
It's a single word. It's a beautiful word. It's the word to tell us die. I have it hanging on the wall in my office. Everyone say to tell us die. And in the Greek, it just simply means it's finished. It's paid in full. There's this powerful term that means everything that has been brought to this point is wrapped up and done in the death and then in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The payment for sin, the moment that will reconcile those who believe in Jesus Christ comes to fruition at the cross. There are forms of this word that are used to sign the bottom of a document as a prisoner walks out of prison. He's fulfilled his time, and the warden would write at the bottom of that document a form of this word. It is paid in full. You are no longer guilty. You cannot be called to account for what you have done because you have been forgiven. To die, it is finished. You believe in Jesus Christ and your sins are paid in full. All of them are placed on the cross with Jesus Christ. And it is his death that pays it all. And we now stand underneath the cross as we sang this morning, we stand underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, washed clean. I am not clean standing by myself before a holy God. I am only clean of my sin if I stand under the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not my ability. It is not my strength. It is not my cleverness. It is not my wisdom. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. To tell us die, it is finished. And in this moment, the text just simply says, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is the completion of a theme that we've noticed throughout the events surrounding the cross. Christ has made it clear every step of the way, I'm in control of this. So he's the one who gives up his spirit and physically dies on the cross. But the story continues, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it was the Passover day, an annual day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Do you think John was questioned about this? Do you think a lot of people didn't believe the story? So when John writes his gospel, he emphasizes, I saw it happen, that you may also believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. So the Jews asked Pilate, we can't have these criminals up here day after day after day. We need to take them down so they need to die fast. So they asked that their legs would be broken. And it turns out that this is another common practice for one reason or another. If the Romans had to move on, because they would often crucify slaves down roads. And their, their army would move on so they would make sure that they were dead. What they would do is they would take a hammer and they would shatter the shin bone. And if you can imagine the process of trying to push yourself up to get another breath of air, they just make sure that can't happen anymore. So then eventually suffocation takes over and the criminals die. But they come to Jesus and they discover that he is already dead. 
And if he is relatively close to the ground, it doesn't take very much before a Roman soldier to take probably the short sword that he has on him and from beneath him pierce his side, probably underneath his ribcage, punctures his lung, maybe even his heart, and what comes out has already been separated because of his death. The blood or the plasma and then what is light or white, the water then flows out of his body. But John the disciple, in this, in this part of the narrative... He emphasizes he watched all of this happen. It's important to the cross, John says, that we understand that Jesus really died a physical death on the cross. That's important to us now, too, and it was important in John's day and age as he becomes a pastor and an elder and a leader and a builder of other churches because very quickly after the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, several different heresies begin to rise to the surface because this story of actual death and actual resurrection just seems too incredible to be true. So a lot of people who, for one reason or another, want to claim the name of Christian but don't want to believe in the resurrection, begin to concoct all of these stories, these heresies, many of them are still with us in one form or another. One story very early on that's still with us, people still write books defending this theory, say that Jesus merely swooned while he was on the cross. He passed out from the pain. And when they took him down and they wrapped him and in the cool of the tomb, while he's all cozy inside of those linen wraps, he wakes back up again. And then he just happens to have enough physical strength to roll a stone uphill off of the tomb. And then overcomes a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's more unbelievable than the real story. That story's still with us. Or the Spirit of God left the man Jesus. And the man, Jesus, was just left on the cross to die. Others believe, and again, these books are still being written, Jesus somehow avoided the cross altogether and they crucified the wrong guy. The story itself is fake. One book, I kid you not, said that Jesus then married Mary Magdalene and went to the south of France to live out the rest of his life. The cross of Jesus Christ is an offense to the sinful heart because, friends, the salvation of this sinner requires the death and resurrection of his Savior. Not some other little silly story that gets around a death and resurrection. The only believable story in the end is that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. He physically walked out of the tomb. That's the only believable story. And that's the only story that saves this sinner's soul. John goes on in the rest of that section that we read to say, now not a single one of his bones was broken. He's pierced probably through the wrist, probably through the backs of his ankles. His shin bones are not broken. Not a single bone in his body is broken, even as he is pierced. And John says this happens to fulfill these other passages of Scripture. And both of them are powerful passages. The first one actually comes from the very first Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, as Jesus is getting ready to free his people from the slavery of Egypt, send them into the wilderness and then into the promised land, he institutes the very first Passover. The angel of death is on his way, but here is how you avoid that. You sacrifice a lamb, you roast it, and you eat it. You don't leave anything. And in that passage of Scripture, it says, and none of the bones of that lamb shall be broken. You take the blood of that lamb and you paint it over your doorposts and you are saved from the angel of death that passes by. And the next day, God frees his people. So that Passover is the initiation of the Exodus. 
And then it is supposed to be observed year after year, over and over and over and over. The Passover lamb is sacrificed. On the weekend of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they want to sacrifice another Passover lamb. They've been doing this for centuries. And then the passage of Scripture that Pastor Brooks read lets us know that what happens with the Passover lamb is that he is sacrificed once for all, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, awaiting for his return. This is it. He's not sacrificed over and over again. But one sacrifice covers all of our sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. So John says, these things happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And that's what he is drawing on is the story in Exodus chapter 12. And the second one is this powerful passage. He says there in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This passage of scripture comes from deep inside of a small Old Testament book. It's the book of Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies 500 years before these events, before the events of the cross. And he prophesies, he says in this particular passage of Scripture, the Messiah will be pierced. Now, one of the reasons that's so important in the book of Zechariah is that in his day and age, in the Old Testament, the manner of execution that was given to them was not crucifixion. It wasn't piercing of any sort. It was stoning. Someone would be crushed. It might be natural for Zechariah to say, we would look on him whom we have crushed. That's not what he says. But the Holy Spirit through Zechariah is looking forward to this moment when Jesus Christ will actually be pierced on a cross. When you go back and you read this passage in the book of Zechariah, it's more than just this moment. He says that the children of God will see their Messiah pierced. And he tells us that this will happen again at the final day when the Lord comes. And many of the people of the Lord, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be saved and given brand new hearts as they behold him whom they have pierced. Part of this passage is in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And if you want to hear this entire story, we went through Zechariah recently on Tuesday nights. You can go back and listen to some of that Bible study. But Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the prophet says to the Holy Spirit, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. God will still yet use in the future the crucifixion, the marks of the crucifixion to continue to draw his own people to himself. But it will happen because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, maybe the most dramatic detail that comes out of this, that comes back to us at the very end of the story of human history as we know it, we open up the book of Revelation and John, the writer of the gospel, is carried by the Spirit of the Lord into the day of the Lord. And he begins to behold everything that unfolds as Christ begins to take authority over all things. And judgment is brought in. His kingdom is brought in forever and ever. As John is in the throne room and this vision is beginning there's this moment before the throne of God where this scroll is brought out. And it's written on both sides. And it's sealed with seven seals. And a cry goes out before the throne of God. Who is worthy to unseal this scroll? And in heaven it is discovered that there is no one who has the authority to open this up. It is the deed to creation. It is the beginning of final and eternal judgment and the beginning of the kingdom of God. No one can do this. No one has the authority. And John understands what's happening. So he begins to weep. And while he weeps, this is what happens. 
In Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John knows who this is. I spend time with this guy. I walked with this guy. I watched him crucified. I saw him risen. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He knows Jesus. But what he sees is this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. For all of eternity, Jesus Christ bears the marks of the crucifixion. The reason, if you are a child of God, the reason you and I will be there with Jesus for eternity, we will see it every time we behold Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of kings. He is the one who conquered. He is the one, and that last phrase essentially says, he is the one who still has all authority and power, omnipotence and omniscience. He still is fully and completely God, but what John sees is a lamb as though it had been slain. They will look on him whom they pierced. It is this incredible moment for us. It's this incredible moment for John. It's the moment that changes everything for us. The rest of the story in John chapter 19, before we get to Resurrection Sunday, goes like this. John 19, beginning in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body. Nicodemus also, and this is the Nicodemus of John chapter 3. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there." So Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. We're going to read that phrase again with the disciples in chapter 20. Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. That's probably the crowd that pushed the crucifixion of Jesus. Joseph is part of the Sanhedrin, but he's a secret disciple of Jesus's. Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. He's also a disciple of Jesus, but he's a secret disciple of Christ's. But in this moment, they, Joseph goes to Pilate. He asks for the body. He and Nicodemus and some of the other women, they take the, the spices and the cloths, the wraps of linen. We learn from other gospel uh, accounts, Matthew chapter 27, verse 60, that Jesus is laid inside of Joseph's personal tomb, Joseph's of Arimathea's tomb. He is encased in these spices. He's wrapped in these cloths. This is the Jewish burial custom. This isn't embalming, but it's a way of preserving the corpse as well as they can. They place them in a tomb. They roll the stone downhill, and then it seals the door, and Jesus is buried inside of the tomb. It's going to take a lot of brute force to move that stone and get out. But before Resurrection Sunday, there is a day of darkness for the disciples. 
I don't think we can always just skip over that day. In the next chapter, we're going to run across where the disciples are after the crucifixion, where they are before Jesus rises from the dead and reveals himself to them again. So we will see it specifically in the next chapter. But at the very least, we need to understand this, that the disciples live in this day of darkness. It isn't yet Resurrection Sunday. Not every day is that day. Some days are dark and our God seems absent. And friends, when you and I walk through these days, understand we are not alone in these days. Christians walk through these days. They walk through these times of life. One of the things the story of Jesus Christ teaches us that his resurrection is so much more powerful than any dark day that we walk through. He's going to show up right in the middle of the disciples' fear and darkness, alive and change everything. There's a lot to this day. There's a lot going on, and John is listing a bunch of things. In the other Gospels, I'd encourage you to go and read the other accounts to fill out the fullness of what happens between the trials and the burial of Jesus Christ and all that happens and all the threads of the Old Testament that get pulled into the death and burial of Jesus Christ. But the cross consumes a lot of space in the Gospels, both the event itself and the preparation for the event because of how important it is. And this is why I want to spend a few moments with this question, wrestling with this question biblically to try to understand how the rest of Scripture understands the cross. Why does the cross happen? What does the cross accomplish? I want to give us three words. These three words come to us from a, a wonderful 20th century theologian, John Stott's his name. But these three words, salvation, revelation, and conquest. Specifically, what does the cross accomplish? The salvation of sinners, the revelation of God, and the conquest of evil. If we pay attention to the cross through the rest of Scripture, these are the kinds of themes that rise to the surface over and over and over. So here's what we mean by that. First of all, the cross accomplishes the salvation of sinners. And if you are in this place or listening to this and you think you are not a sinner, you're lying to yourself, which makes you a sinner. Every single one of us. Friends, the cross pays the sin debt that I owe, but I can never repay. I can search my inner self for all of the affirmation I require from other people. I can gin up enough self-help from within my own self, but I will never be able to solve my own sin problems without the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that gets solved. Don't try to become the perfect person to receive the acceptance of God. Surrender to Jesus Christ and live in his forgiveness and the power of his Holy Spirit and his grace. This is the message of the cross to sinners. We read some of this early on in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love this thought. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Isn't that beautiful? The Apostle Paul talks often about this. He writes to a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And I, I love often how the Apostle Paul works these things into his epistles. They just slip into the middle of his sentences as he describes and explains the life of the believer. He goes, and by the way, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He was the price that was paid to redeem me, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, which is the news that everyone needs at the critical moment. There's only one mediator between you and a holy heavenly father, and that is the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as the price paid to save sinners. He writes another young pastor, Titus, and he says this in Titus chapter 2. He says, what we're doing is we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Here's that buying back language again. He's redeeming the soul. He's moving us from one life to another. He redeems us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is so much beauty in this, these couple of verses. He redeems us from our lawlessness, our sinfulness, our natural inclination to live against God. But what he does is he purifies us for himself, a people who will be his own, who will be his own. And we become people, friends, who become zealous for the works of God on earth. We are energized by the goodness of God to live out the goodness of God. So the cross accomplishes the salvation of sinners. And I encourage you to take these three topics and as you read through, especially the epistles, but through Scripture, to pay attention to these things because we're just hitting, we're hitting pieces of it. The cross accomplishes the salvation of sinners. The cross accomplishes the revelation of God to us. So the cross teaches us about the character and the nature and the power of God. I love this thought. So again, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, as he's talking about the work of God through Jesus Christ on the cross, he says this in Romans 3.26. It meaning the cross, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ reveals the righteousness and the justice of God. It shows his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He is the only just judge and he justifies us he declares us innocent not because of how good you are but because of the purity of the cross of Jesus Christ and his sinlessness so the cross reveals the righteousness and the justice of God Paul goes on a little bit later on Romans chapter 5 verse 8 but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. The cross reveals to us the love of God, his righteousness, his perfect holiness, the justice of God. Sin must be dealt with or God is not holy. So my sin can only be dealt with through the death of Jesus Christ. Or my death will be what deals with my sin and I will die in my sin. But it also reveals the love of God for us. Now we touched on this thought earlier, but I want to make sure that we hear it in John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's on his way to the cross. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Just in case you missed it, the cross reveals the glory of God. Listen, it is the glory of God to forgive our sin and to save sinners. 
It is the glory of God to make orphans his children, to make rebels friends, to make enemies co-creators in his kingdom. This is the glory of God. And it's accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then, friends, the cross of Christ reveals to us, it accomplishes the conquest of evil. How many of you are longing for an end to evil? Man, I hope you are longing for the end to evil right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul talks from beginning to end about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how critical this is to our faith. So as he is reaching this crescendo at the end of this teaching about the cross, he gets to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. The Apostle Paul says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, it's not there anymore. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only victory any of us have over death and over the sin that wants to control us is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's good news. We can release ourselves of our striving and we can believe in Jesus and be saved. This is good news. Another question, will anything ever have the power to separate us from the love of God? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The cross of Christ conquers evil. And now we are in Jesus Christ. And then finally, this passage of Scripture. I love how he puts it at the end of Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15 go like this. You were dead because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he unarmed. He took away all of the authority and power. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he put them to shame. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. 